Hello, I'm Katie Jarvis, and this week, Real Foot Forward is made possible by our friends at Final Flight Outfitters, the family-owned outdoor store that has all the apparel and outdoor equipment you need for your next hunting or fishing trip. Visit finalflight.net for more information. Hello, I'm Katie Jarvis. Welcome to Real Foot Forward from Discovery Park of America, located up here in the corner of beautiful West Tennessee. Every day at our museum and heritage park, we inspire children and adults to see beyond. And each week, we do the same thing here on our podcast. On today's episode, Scott sits down with John Reitzhammer, who is an artist, a director, a musician, and a world traveler. He also runs the Tennessee Legends of Music Museum, located in Carnegie Hall in Jackson, Tennessee. And later, join us as we discover something new here at Discovery Park of America. I'm Scott Williams, host of Real Foot Forward, where each week we celebrate our little section of the South, and just like at our museum and heritage park in Union City, Tennessee, we explore the culture, the spirit, the accomplishments, and the heritage of West Tennessee. So today, I am not at Discovery Park of America, where we usually are today. I'm at the old Carnegie Library in Jackson, Tennessee, and I'm going to find out from John Reitzammer exactly what we're doing here, what's coming to this space, what's here now. There's a lot of fascinating things going on here. John is the producer of the popular podcast, Music Path, where he champions the music in five states referred to as the Americana Music Triangle and the Tennessee Music Pathway. We're going to find out all about that, but also about his passion for preserving West Tennessee music history and his own path from Jackson, Tennessee to Miami and back. Thank you for joining me, John. It's good to be here. So so tell me what, uh, I was just upstairs blown away by all the exhibits that you have that you're putting together. It's an amazing, it's an amazing place. Tell me about where I am today. Well, this is a Carnegie Library that was built in 1903, 125 years ago, and it's it was a, a remarkable place then, and it's a remarkable place now. It's, it's no longer a library. Um, the, a group of people here in Jackson, Tennessee, got together and realized years before that that there was a remarkable music heritage, popular music heritage, uh, and decided to tell that story and so this this building had sat empty for years and uh, the mayor and uh and some other civic folks got together and said we need to save the building and they did thank and, goodness when you walk uh, yeah. right in the door the first thing that you look down at the tile floor it's it's mind-blowing it's so beautiful and it's hard to believe that it 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 didn't really cost that much when it was built. I think it was like thirty thousand dollars all in, and uh, the deal with the city was that they would have to commit to spending three thousand dollars a year for overhead and expenses, and that was a real hurdle to get by in nineteen oh three, because the idea that they were going to commit at the city level to $3,000 a year forever was just overwhelming to them. But it, and it took them four or five years to make the decision to go forward and go ahead and build the library. But uh, 
Carnegie put up the money, and they guaranteed to spend $3,000 a year um, to support it. And it's got a beautiful glass dome. It's sort of the it's, centerpiece. It's just, a, it's a, that was the lighting back then. When they built it, there was no lighting other than gas lights. Uh, there was some electrical, I think, uh, but I don't think there were any electrical lights in the building. So they had built this uh, skylight in the center of this octagon-shaped uh, gallery, which was the library itself where the bookshelves were. And so it's new life has been breathed into the building. Yeah. And there's a, t- tell me a little bit about what you have going on here now. Well, we're, we're, we're essentially celebrating the story of Carl Perkins and his brothers uh, who— were arguably one of the most important contributors uh, to the music of of, of West Tennessee. Uh, and Tina Turner uh, and Sonny Boy Williamson. Now, there's two Sonny Boy Williamsons. This is uh, the real Sonny Boy Williamson. Uh, the other Sonny Boy was named Rice Miller. But our Sonny Boy was John Lee Curtis, Sonny Boy Williamson, and wrote Good Morning Little Schoolgirl and a number of other remarkable uh, songs. But his main claim to fame was uh, amplified harmonica. At the time, harmonica was not uh, a real serious musical, musical instrument. It was something you bought for a quarter or a dollar and a quarter, and uh, it was a toy. And... This guy single-handedly brought uh, a new instrument, a toy, uh, into uh, blues music and moved, uh, became the third instrument. There was the piano and the electric guitar. And then Sonny Boy came along and brought in this this, uh, toy uh, called a harmonica and moved the piano completely out of blues music. So it left the electric guitar and the harmonica, and he, he also realized that he could get a small uh, amplifier and what used to be called a bullet um, microphone and hold the microphone next to the harmonica, and it would become an amplified musical instrument just like an electric guitar. So let's real quickly just listen to a real quick clip of Sonny Boy um, playing that harmonica. Yeah, that's incredible that that all happened right here uh, in West Tennessee. Um, so, so the Americana Music Triangle, I know, is an important part of the work that you do and of, of what the focus will be here. Talk to me a little bit about, about the triangle and, and where are the locations and why, how did that get selected and that, that type of thing. If uh, Aubrey uh, Preston is probably the first two words that you need to say when you say Americana Music Triangle. Aubrey Preston is a uh, remarkable visionary business person, uh, that lives in Nashville, Tennessee. And um, he, he thought and thought about music and where it came from, and he couldn't help but notice that an enormous amount of our mus- American music cultural, well, in the world's cultural music, popular music, came from a, 
an area that's from Louisiana and particularly New Orleans to Memphis to Nashville and Bristol, and it formed a, a sort of a, a squished triangle. And he he realized that that so much of the original American music, Americana music, uh, came from that area, and he just decided that he would. Uh, organically create a movement, and so that's that. It's it really isn't a commercial endeavor on any level. He just decided, I want to. He, he describes it as Central Park. It's like Central Park in that it's there for everyone to use, but we're not going to try to sell it to anyone. And so he just makes information available on a website called the Americana Music Triangle uh, website. And but but if you look at it from the moon, he he describes it this way: you look at it from the moon, at at the Earth down there, and when you realize where all of the music came from, an awful lot of the popular music came from originally from America. It's in that small delta area in the south, and he just began to explore why that why that happened. I love his quote, America's roots music preservation begins with a screen door slam, a beer, and a plate of barbecue. That sums it up, doesn't it? It does. He said, one of the things he said in the interview that I did with him for that podcast is that uh, you really you really don't want the federal government involved. You really don't want state government involved. You really want people to, if it's done right, and that's back to this, his concept of organic development, just let people discover Gipps Place in Bessemer, Alabama. Uh, let them find these roadside dives, and instead of having the, uh, the federal government or an arts council giving them money to keep them alive, let them sell some barbecue and a, a, a beer, and somebody will perform some music, and they'll tell their friends, and that organically can continue to thrive, hopefully. And what, what's fascinating is there's people that have lived here in this area their whole lives, and yet they don't understand how rare and unique and what a gift this area is. We have more than 5 million international visitors who come to this area every year to explore uh, the Triangle and the Tennessee Music Pathway. That's and, right. you know, I mean, it's just, there. it's all around us. It's part of the air we breathe here. It is, and it's, when when you're in Nashville or uh, Beale Street or Music Row, and you're listening to the the dialects and languages as, as, as visitors pass, it's, you're struck very quickly with the fact that uh, an awful lot of them are foreign-born or have come here from uh, outside the United States. And so I asked about that in Nashville. And they said, oh, yeah, 48 49% of our visitors that are certainly that are music-related, music-themed visitors, they're all from, uh, half of them are from Europe. Yeah. Half, and, and, and so there's this, there's this realization that we take for granted this um, amazing musical heritage that we're sitting right in the middle of because it's always been around us. Right. And, and Europeans think, oh, my Lord, you mean Good Morning Little Schoolgirl was written by that guy? Right. In that place? That's, can I go to that place? 
Can I stand next to his? Can, one of the most popular areas is Sonny Boy's grave because, oddly, he wrote a song about being buried in Jackson, Tennessee. And people bring harmonicas. They do. And leave them on there. Yeah, <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, so the Tennessee Music Pathway, as they call it, uh, it explores this, the seven genres of, of music that we here in Tennessee, you know, we're the home of. It's uh, country, rock, blues, soul, bluegrass, rhythm and blues, gospel and jazz. And I would throw in there rockabilly and southern gospel because both of those are Absolutely. are different. So, I mean, it's, it really is incredible, the, the uh, soundtrack um, that we all get to, to exist in around here. So you love music so much that you started a podcast. Tell me about um, your podcast. Well, it's actually focused on promoting the museum, the the Legends of Tennessee Music Museum in Jackson, Tennessee. That's what that was the question that it was the answer to, um, and but it grew from that because I realized that I wanted to the the, the there's so much rich textural material in the music that I didn't want to limit it to the county or to the city limits or even to the state of Tennessee. Although it's hard to miss how much music is it comes from Tennessee in particular. That as you move out, you move down into Mississippi and Alabama and Arkansas and but the the Tennessee for some reason has this richness this, um, this, this, his, I don't, I don't know what it is. Gravitas of of music uh, history that that uh, it's. I, I wanted to do more of that. So I, I began talking to musicians, and musicians are some of the most amazing storytellers that you can possibly imagine. And they've been in and out of situations that are just unspeakable and unbelievable. And so I'd realized that there's this, not only is there richness of music, but there's richness in stories. And it's, it's an awful lot of what people are interested in when they say, I want to, I want to go to Sonny Boy's grave, or I want to go to Graceland. They want to know, they want to look behind the curtain and hear about what actually happened. Why did Jerry Lee Lewis say or do that? Why is that in this song? Um, and what's what's the background of it? And so that's what the podcast is about. And so it's really a reflection of the museum that you're creating here exactly. in the library as well. Um, how uh, I know you're a communicator from from way back. You're like me. We've both been communicating for a long time. We went through the the uh, birth of digital communication, and um, how how is doing a podcast different than than what you've done previously, or or is it different? I remember when I it was only a year and a half ago that I started the podcast, and I remember thinking, "Oh my lord, it, it's like I'm, I'm, it's it's what I normally do, which is to tell a story and do a documentary or create a, create something, but it's with your eyes closed." It, people are listening to it. They're not l- looking at anything, and I just don't know how. I, I, it seems to me that's very restrictive. As it turns out, it's not restrictive at all. It's the it's the that what they used to call the magic of radio, uh, because you have this other thing going on, which is people can listen to it in environments that they're on their way somewhere, and so 
there's an opportunity to get in front of an audience uh, and have them imagine it and think about it. So it's not as restrictive as I originally thought. But yeah, it's quite a bit different than than uh, camera angles and uh, screen direction and editing. But it's there's a it's it's really a versatile thing because you can create something uh, out of bits and pieces that have substantially more meaning than what the pieces were. And and you mentioned uh, your videography and your documentarian work. You've put together a documentary that that I'm looking forward to seeing. Jackson first to rock. What 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 is uh, in the, in that documentary? Well, for a museum, uh, the essence of a museum story uh, is what what's unique. Why would someone come here? What's what have you got to sell? What what is your claim? And so when I'm first. Uh, began planning the, the this theme, the the narrative of this museum. I tried to figure out what we had to, to uh, as our claim to fame. There's Sun Records. It's in Memphis. There's Music Row. That's in Nashville. Um, the stories have, had been told to that point using the the um, the fact that music had been recorded, had been had been laid down and then commercially made available in these two cities on either side of us, Memphis and Nashville. And what I realized was that the claim to fame that this uh, community had and this part of the state or the part of the country had was that rock music and and certain venues, uh, um, certain uh, kinds of country, swing country, rockabilly, had been heard first here. Because Carl Perkins, oddly, didn't sing Blue Suede Shoes for the first time at, on a microphone at, at uh, Sun Records. He sang it hundreds and hundreds of times in audience in, in small clubs and juke joints around Madison County and he he tried out these songs for years before they were recorded uh, in Memphis, and so Jackson was the first to hear much of this music on this planet, and that's that was the claim to fame. So Jackson first to rock is the fact that uh, much of the essence of the beginning of rock music was in fact heard first here. And so uh, is it. Uh... Uh, a look at the history. Is it a look back? Is it you know what? Having not seen it yet, I'm excited to see it. What what is in the documentary? Well, it's, it starts with the notion of of uh, um, two different genres that happened at the same time. One uh, on a street in Jackson, um, whose name will come to me in a minute, Shannon. One uh, on a street in Jackson called Shannon Street. And Shannon Street was a, a basically an alley in the middle of a uh, an alley area where black blues players could, in fact, play on the and uh, and uh, Sonny Boy actually played in, uh, on Shannon Street uh, to black audiences, and and it was in fact where Sonny Boy sort of learned to play the uh, harmonica. And then another group 
on the edge of town, right at the edge of the county line, white uh, musicians were doing sort of a fast, a faster-paced version of country music from Nashville. So they, what they were doing was, uh, while Sonny Boy was downtown playing uh, a electrified harmonica, these white musicians were on the edge of town speeding up uh, country music, and people were dancing to it. Uh, and it was these two things. It was this country music on the edge of town and Sonny Boy's um, uh, blues downtown that came together and essentially became rock and roll. And so to see that, folks have to come here to the Legends uh, Museum to be able to see that documentary. Right. Um, I'm sure it's great. You're, you're a talented documentarian. You're doing something that I've always been fascinated by as somebody who loves genealogy and history and family history. You've got a, a company called New Bridge Biofilms where you will, for me, if I were to hire you, you'll put together a documentary about the heritage of my family. Is that how to describe that? Yeah, my father was a world-class genealogy uh, researcher. He, for 60 years, researched our family. Uh, 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 and one of those lines goes right through Union City. My uh, great-grandfather was the the uh, city physician. He was the guy everybody went to uh, when they had a cold. And what was his uh, last name? Dr. Richards. Dr. His, Richards. his name was was Dr. Richards. And uh, he's buried in a, a a, a, a graveyard there uh, in uh, Union City, and I've been. I, that's what brought me to Union City was to do some research at the library. Did you stop at Discovery Park of America while you were there? I didn't even know it was there oh. when I was there. I, this was this was six years ago. Oh, okay, it wasn't I, there then. It wasn't. It wasn't. There well, then. you see, yeah, I don't feel new. so bad. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, but I, I went to the library. You got a world class library with world class people that work there. I I do I spend a lot of time in libraries and uh, uh, so the Union City Library was a was a very very good place to do research. Um, my my father was a was a genealogist and I would sit and talk with him about all of these squares and with people's names and their three key dates: death, uh, marriage, and birth. Uh, in reverse order, uh, and I would say, Dad, you know, this is wonderful to know what this lineage is, but you know what I want to know? I want to know what's the story in that box. And he said, What do you mean? I, what's the story? Where, where? What did that? What did that guy or that woman uh, care about? What in the world was their life like? And that's the part that you've got to go back and get. And so, luckily. My dad lived for another 15 or 20 years, and I was in college and back and forth earning a living somewhere. But I would come back, and at Christmas time, and we'd spend time talking about it, and I got him to write down an awful lot of the stories. Uh, and so then I realized, wait, why don't, why don't people actually preserve those stories? Because uh, their grandchildren are going to have grandchildren, and... All of those things that even if, if even like you, if you if you've got a genealogist in the family, you know exactly who begat who. The fact of the matter is, but what did they do? And what's heartbreaking is if you don't get it now, it's gone. It's gone. 
It's absolutely so gone. Even as a little kid, I would tape my grandparents talking about the past. I was fascinated, even as a little kid, you know, with history and yeah. with the stories. I wanted yeah. the stories, not just the dates. Yeah. So, so you help people pull all that together. It's very difficult, and and uh, but it it can be done. The, it's it's one it's as a business plan. It's it sounds uh, just wonderful because when you when you say oh yeah it's a it's a way to do this that this is very difficult for many many families to do uh, uh, so it's it's not foolproof and almost the the people that do it best are people that do it like you did point a, a microphone and a cassette recorder and start 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much more difficult to do it if you're trying to do it in the present about the far past. But it can be done. It, it just requires uh, someone that comes in from the outside and sort of sees the story in the pattern of the family and then writes something. Well, thanks to Ancestry.com and, and, and social media, and we are able to connect you know, more dots than we were able to before the internet. So yes. I do think that's contributed to the resurgence of people being interested in uh, genealogy and recording their own family stories. Right. Um, you've got some great examples on your website. Um, if, if anybody's curious, you can Google New Bridge Biofilms, um, and you've got a great website for that. Thank you. But you know a lot about film and television because you were the commissioner of film and television um, in uh, Florida. I was. So how, how did that come about? Um, the, uh, a really remarkable statesman named Lawton Childs was Senator Lawton Childs. And I met him. Uh, he, he needed a campaign. He needed campaign videos. And so I produced his campaign videos, um, the commercials for two of his uh, Senate runs. Um, and then he he uh, left the Senate, and about three or four years he lived in Florida, North Florida. And one night he called and said, John, I, I'm going to run for governor. No one knows that. But I'd like for you to come over tomorrow, and we, my wife and I, and the, and uh, he, he had uh, some remarkable sons that were my age, and uh, we all got together and planned the the uh, thing. So uh, this, he became governor, and he asked me. Uh, he said, "John, you know, there's um, Florida is is right on the verge of being a major motion picture." Uh, site, perhaps, uh, and I think you could help do something, and, and I have the friends. He, he mentioned um, uh, these three uh, uh, very, very well-placed presidents of the, the three major uh, 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 Los Angeles uh, film studios, and he knew them by their first name. And he said, you know, I'll just introduce you to the heads of the studios, and I said, okay, that sounds like good. So that's what, what he did. He went out there with me, and we walked in uh, to the the studio head's offices. And if you've got the governor sitting next to you, you there's you can go an awful lot of places. So <laughs> he he basically said, I will let you use the office of governor, and I will support you because 
Lou Wasserman, he called, he said, I'll take you and meet you to Lou, mm-hmm. uh, introduce you to Lou. And I had never met Lou Wasserman. <laughs> it's just, and and um, so that's what we did. And the it's odd, but all the marketing money, all of the uh, research, all the personnel in the world doesn't come close to having to having the ability to have the governor of the state sitting next to you, and then you, when you come back, they say. And the governor is going to help us on this. I said, yes, yes, he still wants to do it. And it, 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 you don't have to be a giant salesman. What you, you, what you have been given is the keys to uh, making it happen. It's um, so I had the governor of the state who wanted film and television in the state. But and he gave you a big budget, uh, not a big budget, but he gave you a big goal. He, he, oh, yes, he did. He wanted a billion dollars in annual economic impact. Yes. And I thought, well, it was at $234 million at the time. And I thought, I had not done the math. Uh, and I hadn't figured what kind of percentage increase that was going to be. I said, okay, yeah, well, all right, let's do that. <laughs> I mean, a goal, we need a goal. Yeah. And it was really difficult. That was an 800% or something, a, a huge number increase. I, I had someone do it on a graph and realized that the, the curve was going to be not straight up, but close to straight up. It took more than Lou Wasserman to get to a billion dollars. It, it took, well, it took an awful lot of people in the state who recognized there was an opportunity. And in every, every an awful lot of the communities, well, there's Miami and Fort Lauderdale and Palm Beach. All three of those counties got behind it. Um, there was Orlando. And there's three counties there, but the Disney and Universal. And, um, and then there's Jacksonville, which you may or may not have uh, thought of as a music, as a, uh, uh, a motion picture and television area, but it was, and and is. There's a lot shot in North Florida as well. Uh, so th- all of those economic development groups got together and recognized the opportunity. And so what I did was, when the governor was going to be going to Los Angeles, I would get those economic development groups to go out there, and we'd have a, a reception. And so they were given the power of the governor's office as well. And that was sort of the key to doing it. One person with a governor is only one person in a telephone. All of the economic development people within the state having a relationship with the governor. Now, that was, that was actually how we got it done. It took teamwork. Yeah. It took everybody being invested and nobody being selfish. And, you know, that's a, that's a lot the way that we promote tourism here in West Tennessee. We're all very teamwork-oriented. And so ba- that brings us back to the museum. What's, what's next for here for the Legends of Tennessee Museum? Um, w- w- what do you have planned? Well, the... In the um, in the twelve months, uh, the next year, we're uh, we're in the middle right now of creating an exhibit that will be the origin stories of two major brands of music, House of Blues and Hard Rock Cafe. And you might ask yourself, why would a, a little town like Jackson, Tennessee? Be doing that, and the real the the reason is Isaac Tigret grew up in Jackson, Tennessee, 
and his parents and his parents' parents were part of the community and uh, brought the railroad here. And it, 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 there's a, a rich story that's behind the Tigrets. Um, but Isaac uh, left Jackson and went to London and started the Hard Rock. And then after he sold the Hard Rock Cafe, uh, he created the House of Blues. And Isaac is one of the key players in our in in this museum story. And Isaac and I are creating the origin stories for both the House of Blues and Hard Rock Cafe, and that will be here. So people will come here and hear the and get to look behind the curtain of how the Hard Rock started and how the House of Blues started, and see portions of the videos of performances and uh, experience that in a museum setting. Well, it's incredible. Thank you so much for being here and or letting me come here and do this podcast here at your incredible museum. Um, everyone can listen to all the past episodes of Music Path on your podcast listening program of choice. You can subscribe and listen on iTunes, or you can visit music-path.org to hear all the episodes. And now the always exploring and ever discovering Andrew Gibson has discovered something new at Discovery Park of America that just may change your life. Take it away, Andrew. Thank you, Scott. I am Andrew Gibson with the Education Department here at Discovery Park of America. And today I'm with Art Shivers, a docent here, uh, who will be telling us more and sharing a story about Union City's centennial uh, festival party fiasco, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it sounded like a great time. So, Art, take it away. Okay. Well, as everybody knows pretty well, that Union City was formed in 1854, and George Washington Gibbs was the founder. And uh, about 100 years later, which was exactly 100 years later, in 1954, Union City had a centennial. And it was a celebration here in Union City, which took place. And uh, it lasted about 10 days, and during that time, there were an awful lot of things happened. So, uh, we're really, uh, during the, uh, the Senior Citizens Month here, this next month here in August, uh, I'm going to be uh, showing these, uh, talk a little bit about this, and showing pictures from that event. So I just kind of want to throw that in there as well, okay? So what kind of things uh, did they do? What were some of the events that they that they, that they partook in? Well, part, it, partake in? right. Okay, it started off on um, uh, the 20th of June, and uh, they had a little religious service in the very beginning, and then it lasted 10 days. And during that time, there were several different events took place. Uh, they had uh, sharpshooters uh, competition that went on. They had uh, uh, different things as far as... Um, a cooking contest. They had a, a square dancing here that uh, was in the that was in the streets of Union City. They had a kangaroo court uh, that went on, and just numerous little things that people were interested in at the time. And uh, it was a, really a big event here, really a big event. So, Art, do you think that you will be part of planning the next centennial? Well, I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> At that time, I was, um, in fact, I've got a picture of myself there at the at the celebration, or, well, it was in the, during the parade. I was two months old at the time, so uh, I'll be exactly uh, 100 years and two months if I, if I do make it that way, but it, uh, I kind of doubt it. <laughs> um, so 
tying that into what we have here at the park, um, is there any really direct correlations? Is there, you know, do we have pictures from that event or? Yes, we do. Uh, there's During that time, they had a, a professional photographer which came into Union City and uh, he took pictures of Union City before the event. And uh, they took uh, pictures of downtown. They took pictures of different businesses, uh, different uh, factories which were here. And uh, during that time, uh, a whole uh, group of pictures was assembled that more or less just took the Union City at that time and just more or less uh, where we can look back at Union City during that time and, and enjoy it. And who is that photographer? I don't know the name of the gentleman, but he was uh, here in Union City, but he didn't stay here very long. I, I don't know that. All right. Thank you, Art, for sharing that with us. Um, I know a lot of our listeners, including myself, discovered something new today about Union City's giant centennial party that we had. Uh, so forget Carnival, uh, forget Coachella. We'll see you here at Discovery Park of America and in Union City in 2054 for the next centennial party. Uh, we thank you all for listening to Real Foot Forward, a West Tennessee podcast, and we hope to see you here real soon. Thank you for listening to Real Foot Forward. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you may be listening. Plan your own adventure to see beyond at Discovery Park of America by visiting discoveryparkofamerica.com. Be sure to also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for the latest updates.